I don't want you to answer out loud. I just want you to think about this and really give it some thought as we proceed into the message today. If you could pray one prayer and instantly have everything you want, would you do it? Everything. Material, relational, physical, mental, emotional, everything. If you could pray that prayer and God would grant you every single thing you ever wanted, would you pray that prayer? With that in mind, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. If you know where Psalms is, sort of right in the middle of the Old Testament, go to Psalms, go right, and you'll hit Ecclesiastes very quickly. So in our study through the entire Bible, we came a few weeks ago to 1 Kings, and we studied, well, in First and Second Samuel, we studied the life of David. Then in 1 Kings, we studied the life of Solomon for several weeks. We finished up right near the end of 1 Kings chapter 11, at the end of Solomon's life. And I mentioned to you then that I'm trying to teach the Bible in chronological order and, and put things into place uh, where they belong with the, with the people that they belong with. And so we've taken a few weeks to pause right there in 1 Kings 11 and look at the writings of David and the writings of Solomon. We looked at Psalms, we've looked at Proverbs, last week we looked at Song of Solomon, and today we come to the last of those, the writings of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes. Next Sunday we'll pick right back up at the end of 1 Kings chapter 11 with uh, the death of Solomon. And before Solomon dies, he writes this little book, and I can tell you, this book, uh, if we were to take a poll and get honest feedback on this book, uh, I don't think it would be a really encouraging poll. This is just one of those books that people generally don't read. They get uh, one or two chapters deep, maybe, and just go, whoa, boy, this is a real downer. This is really discouraging. I don't need this in my life right now. And they move on to something um, maybe a little more pleasant. I would encourage you to really, really Really give this a second chance this morning because this is a powerful, powerful book. Well, let's begin. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. Solomon writing, he says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, the word preacher there is confusing in our terminology today. It doesn't mean pastor here. It simply means one who speaks to an assembly of people. And so Solomon is saying, hey, gather around everybody. I've got some things to tell you before I, I step off the stage of human history here shortly. I've got some things to tell you that you cannot afford to miss. And we will miss what he's trying to say in Ecclesiastes if we don't understand that there are two key phrases used all the way through this book that are critical to an understanding of this book. If we have any hope of making Ecclesiastes make sense to us. We have to pay attention and take note of these two phrases. They're both found in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What profit or what advantage does a man have from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Now, the first key phrase or first key word there is vanity. Underline that or circle that. It occurs 35 times in this book. It's very important. It's at the core of everything in the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And it describes things uh, that vanish, that are elusive or fleeting. In fact, the root meaning of vanity in, right here in Ecclesiastes is breath or vapor. You've gone out on a cold morning and you can see your breath and then seconds later, it's gone. That's what this word vanity means. It's, it's thinking that you've grabbed hold of something, but when you open your hands and look, it's gone. And you go, well, I thought I had that. And it's gone. That's vanity. And that's one of the troubles with um, some of the older English. When we hear vanity, we don't think of that at all. We think of someone who's arrogant, vain, and so on. That's not it at all. That's not what that's talking about. It's sort of like the word, um, what would be another one? Offend. You read the word offend in, in the Bible. To us, offend means somebody hurt your feelings and you're ticked off. That's not what it means in the King James at all. It means to trip or to stumble. In those days, a little boy would come running into his mommy, holding his knee and say, Mommy, I offended, I offended. See, they fell. So vanity here is one of those tricky words. I want you to really try to get this in your mind. It's important. It means breath. It means vapor, something that you try to grab hold of and you can never quite get it. It means futility, emptiness, nothingness. Now, the second key phrase is under the sun. Circle that or underline that. It's found 29 times in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. It's also rendered a few times under heaven. Same thing. And Solomon uses this phrase to refer to everything that takes place on the earthly realm. It's not taking place in heaven. It's in the physical. It's on the earthly plane. It describes life that is purely lived for material things or physical appetites and pleasures. And so Solomon is creating a contrast here, right in these opening verses, upon which the entire book of Ecclesiastes is built. He's saying, you can either live life under the sun, S-U-N, or you can live life under the sun, S-O-N. And there is a world of difference. So the main lesson, I think, of Ecclesiastes, if I were to go ahead and boil it down at the beginning here, is that life lived purely from an earthly perspective is vanity. It's empty. It's meaningless. Leave God out of the equation, and sooner or later, life will ultimately bring you emptiness and frustration. I can guarantee that, 100%. I want to give you one more quick clarification about this book to help us. Not everything written in Ecclesiastes is meant to be followed. Did you know there are things in the Bible that are not true? Hmm, some shocked looks. Now, I believe the Bible is entirely God's word. I believe it is all truth. But there are some statements in the Bible that are not true. And they're put in there to emphasize what is true or to warn us about things. When we read Ecclesiastes, we're reading the words of a man who's near the end of his life, and he's looking back on it with bitter regret. Bitter regret. Solomon had everything. He had endless wealth. He had unchallenged authority. He had worldwide fame. He had nonstop entertainment and delight. He had every imaginable possession and pleasure. But all those things eventually turned his heart away from God and wrecked his life. And so Solomon sits down and pours out his thoughts 
And he's going to say a lot of things in this book that should not be followed because he's writing from a backslidden perspective. In other words, when he talks about the things he got wrong, they should be taken as warnings, not instructions. And we'll see an example of that in a second. We should, I think we should learn from other people's mistakes without needing to repeat them. Amen? Learn from their mistakes without repeating them. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes contains a number of well-known phrases, things that have even made their way into the current vernacular. Here are some you might be familiar with, and since we can only do just really a quick overview of this book today, let me just highlight some of these uh, from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 5 says, The sun also rises. That was the title of a famous book you may know from uh, Ernest Hemingway back in 1926, I think, mid-20s. Chapter 1, verse 9, there is nothing new under the sun. I heard someone use that not long ago. Ecclesiastes 3.1, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. You hippies sit down, there's no swaying and dancing to this, please. <laughs> a time. I can't stand that song. Amen. Pete Seeger, just mm, mm, mm. Uh, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, that whole thing. That's from Ecclesiastes. Chapter 4, verse 9, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. As I read those words, I hear the voice of Moose Keller. He's told me this a hundred times in the 35 years that I've known him. Don't go it alone, Phil. Thank you, Moose. I love you. I appreciate all of that. Ecclesiastes 8.15, eat, drink, and be merry. Ecclesiastes 10.1, a fly in the ointment. Ointment, one of my least favorite words. <laughs> and one more, Ecclesiastes 11.1. This is a little lesser known, but it's a phrase in some parts of the world, cast your bread upon the waters. Now, as I say, we're only going to do a quick overview. Uh, we just want to sort of catch the theme, the, the main point that Solomon is getting at here. So let's walk through some of this and uh, see what he's trying to tell us. Now, I will say this. The book of Ecclesiastes is, is one of those books that speaks for itself. Not all books in the Bible are that way. Some need to really be unpacked and explained in, in great detail. But a book like this that explains itself is one of those books, the best thing a preacher can do with a book like this is just to get out of the way and let the text speak for itself. Now, that's good advice for every sermon, for every lesson that we bring. Let the text speak. But sometimes, as I said, you've got to really dig in and explain, as Jesus did with parables, and this is not one of those books, except for the end, the middle of chapter 12, there's some stuff there that is just old terminology. And so I just want to basically go through some chapters and read some of what the verses say. And I think that on their own, for the most part, you'll get it. They'll hit with great impact. So verse 3 again, chapter 1, verse 3, what profit does a man have from all his labor in which he toils under the sun. There's that key phrase again, under the sun. Now, he's not saying work is bad. What he's saying is working for things under the sun in the earthly realm. He said, if that's all you're working for, it's not going to profit you one bit when life is over. And then he begins describing what life under the sun is like. He says it's, it's a never-ending cycle. And to illustrate this, in verses 4 through 7, 
he says, he uses a number of um, just natural everyday things that we see uh, to describe this endless cycle of life. Verse 4, he compares it to the endless cycle of generations. Generation is born and a generation dies. It just goes on and on and on. Verse 5, he talks about the endless cycle of the sun. It rises and it sets over and over again. Verse 6, the endless cycle of the wind. It continually flows and follows its circuit around the earth. Verse 7, the endless cycle of the rivers. They flow into the sea, and then the water's picked up, and it's carried in land. It's dropped in form of rain, ends up in the rivers, which again flow back to the sea. He said everything under the sun is just endless cycles. By the way, how'd Solomon know that about the patterns of the wind and the rivers and the rain, the hydrologic cycle? which is also mentioned in Psalms, it was centuries, centuries after this before man discovered that there were currents in the air. And as Psalm mentions, rivers in the ocean. What? Yeah, they knew all that back then. We think we're smarter than they were? Nah, man's going down, downhill. We've lost a lot. So he, he basically just says, man, everything under the sun, everything in this physical realm, it's just an endless cycle. Life ever feel that way at all? Some days, some days, some weeks, worse than others. What, gardening? Don't say that in church. That's a horrible word. You're right, though, it never ends. You pull the weeds, it looks great. You stand back and admire your work. Two weeks later, they're back again, sticking their tongue out at you. That's it. Laundry, the cleaning, the going to work, right? Life, it's an endless cycle. It just goes on and on and on. And then Solomon switches over to man's endless pursuit of satisfaction. Verse 8, he says, all things are full of labor, and you know, everything is, is tough. Man cannot express it. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. In other words, man's appetite, man's need for things will never be satisfied. Just when you think you've got enough, you don't and you need more, or you want more. And he expands on this in chapter 2. He describes the lifelong quest that, that he went on trying to find fulfillment and meaning. And boy, this is just something else. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But behold, this also was vanity, empty, meaningless, pointless, in verse 2, he tries comedy. He says, boy, let's bring in the, the top uh, comedy acts of the nation into the palace. Let's, uh, let's yuck it up. Let's have a lot of laughter. And he says, no, he realizes that's not the answer. In verse 3, he tries drinking wine. He becomes a connoisseur. And he does all the silly stuff that they do, talking about the nose of the wine and whatever. It's just nonsense. It's utter nonsense. Uh, you have to belong to that level of society that thinks that's actually real. But anyway, he tries, he tries drinking wine and he tries acting foolish, but none of that worked. Verse 4, he said, I made great works or projects. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Verse 6, I made pools of water from which to water the growing trees of the grove. He had an irrigation system way back then. Verse 7, he tried getting more servants. He acquired more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before him. Verse 8, I accumulated for myself silver and gold 
and the treasure of kings and provinces, I gather to myself male and female singers. Man, let's bring in the entertainment. All of the top singers, let's bring them all into the palace, have a concert. Maybe that'll give me meaning in life. Verse 9, I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And now, folks, we're starting to get a taste. We're starting to get a picture of the scope of Solomon's pursuits. And if we add what we've just read to what we've already looked at in 1 Kings when we saw Solomon's life and all his wealth and all his fame and all his possessions, it's really jaw-dropping. He had more than anyone who had ever lived. He was more famous than anyone who had ever lived. Solomon literally had no boundaries. No boundaries. We might think, oh, that's so cool. That would be so great not to have no boundaries in my life. Just do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. Yeah? Look at what Solomon says in verse 10. Just the the extent of this is unreal. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. He's saying, whatever I wanted, whatever I desired, whatever I lusted for, I went and got it. All of it. And you'd, you'd think, after reading all that, that Solomon must have been the happiest, most fulfilled person on earth. But look at verse 11. Then I looked at all the works that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, and behold, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. And the result of that, look down at verse 17, he said, therefore I hated life. What? I hated life. Because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me or perplexing to me, for all is vanity, it's all empty, it's all transient, it's all meaningless, it's all vanity, it's all a grasping for the wind. This doesn't make sense. Everything in our culture, all the advertisements tell us the exact opposite. You got to go get that thing, man. Hey, Phil, you're three generations behind on your iPhone. You're a loser. You got to have it. You got to catch up. You got to have the latest. You got to have the best. Keep up with the Joneses, you know? It, it never ends. And the world tells us if you just buy this car, this gorgeous model will actually come with the car. It will, it will change your life. I mean, and here we've just taken a quick glimpse at a man who had more than anyone who ever lived. No boundaries. Whatever his heart wanted, he got. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Would it though? So you mean to tell me that a guy with all the power and prominence and possessions and pleasures that Solomon had hated life? That's what he says. How's that possible? Well, the answer is right there in that verse. Again, he's not saying that work is bad. Work is a gift from God, and we should be thankful for that. But notice carefully, he says it was all the work that was done under the sun that ultimately left him empty. That is, everything done in our own energy, by our own efforts, for our own ends. None of that 
can ever lead us to true life, true joy, true fulfillment. That, that can only be found. True life, true joy, true fulfillment, true meaning and purpose can only be found in things that are under the S-O-N, not the S-U-N. Now, obviously, all of us have to do earthly things while we're here on this earth, but we should constantly be monitoring, folks, as we go about our day. And, And listen, pursuits in life are not wrong. Pleasure is not wrong. Owning things is not wrong. My dad always used to say to me, it's okay to own things as long as things don't own you. How about that? Thank you, dad. Great advice. Great wisdom. It's okay to own things as long as things don't own you. Some Christians, you know, they, they teach, well, it's, it's wrong to, to have money. It's wrong to have a nice house. Nonsense. It's not. It's all in perspective. Those things are, are amoral. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, people say money is the root of all evil. No, it is not. The love of money is the root of all evil. And so it's our, it's our attachment to things. Where is our heart pointing? What are we pursuing? And so as we go through life doing these normal human earthly things, we should constantly monitor our desires, our intentions, our aim to make sure that our heart is set on eternal things, not earthly things. And here's why. Here's why. When we die, we won't be able to hold on to a single earthly thing. Not one. Look what Solomon said in verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun. There it is again. Why? Because I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. How about that? That's a roll of the dice kind of thing. Boy, I worked hard my whole life to build this empire. Well, when you close your eyes for the last time, you're not going to know whether it's going to be kept up or destroyed. And we'll see that next week. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, would, in fact, mishandle all that was left to him, and it would eventually all be lost. And Solomon began to realize this at the end of his life. Well, in chapter 3, We find those well-known words, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. And there are some tremendous lessons in there. Uh, That's a sermon on its own. I'm not going to take time to dive into all that today. You can read through that on your own. Some tremendous lessons. In other words, he's saying, and this I think is especially true when we're younger. I hope this would perhaps fade away somewhat as we get older. But he's saying, listen, now is not the time for everything. If your parents say, hmm, you don't need to rush into this marriage, there's some wisdom you can learn right here. Now is not the time for everything. There's time to speak. There's time to shut up. There's a time to pursue things. There's a time to sit down. There's a time to gather things. There's a time to give things away. It's a, it's a tremendous passage. I'll leave that to you. And then Solomon talks more about the, the futility of labor in and of itself. Chapter 3 closes with his frustration of how when, when judgment is needed in a situation, it seems like only wickedness is there. When righteousness is needed, it just seems like, like iniquity is there. And that idea carries over into chapter 4. He says, 
He says, I saw the tears of the oppressed, those people in the world who who were being horribly oppressed, but they had no one to comfort them. And it seemed like, he says, the oppressors were the ones who had all the power. And this really got to Solomon, because after seeing that, he concluded that it's better to be dead than to be alive. Now, that's one of those statements I mentioned earlier. It's not to be taken as an instruction. I think maybe we've all reached that point if we've lived long enough. You just, you just go, oh, it's just not worth it. It's too much. Probably be better just to be dead than alive. Many people come to that point. But these are, these are not instructions. These are just the, the thoughts and feelings that Solomon is experiencing during this low point of backsliding in his life. Well, he goes on more in chapter 4, and then in chapter 5, he gives warnings about how to use our words, cautions about how we use our words. In chapter 5, verse 2, for instance, he says, Do not be rash with your mouth, and do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God. And this is one of my favorite phrases in this book. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. You know, uh, when I was about 20, I was pretty sure I knew everything. And I could talk and talk about stuff. You know, the weird thing is, even though if you only see me on Sundays, you think all I do is talk, my family will tell you differently. I'm very quiet. The older I get, the less I have to say. Because I look back and go, boy, Phil, you bungled that. You should have just kept your mouth shut. And see, this phrase here, God is in heaven, and pal, you're on earth, better not say too much. Better just to be quiet, listen, and learn. He warns us to be very careful about making vows that you can't keep. And so that whole first section is about watching your mouth. Again, you can glean great things from there, but I must move on. The rest of chapter 5, he covers the foolishness of pursuing riches and repeats the fact that we we can't take any of it with us when we go. In verse 15, he says, you're born naked, you didn't bring anything into the world, and when you die, you're not going to take anything out. We've all heard the phrase, but may I remind you again, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. There's the CEO of a very large company who was rumored to be worth millions and millions of dollars, but nobody in the company was ever able to find out just how much. When he died... At the graveside service, one employee leaned over and asked one of the other employees, do you know how much he left? And she looked puzzled and she said, all of it. He left all of it. You see, again, there's nothing wrong with pursuing things, with having goals, with attaining and achieving things. In fact, I think Christians should shine better in some of these areas. But But again, it's the condition of the heart. Some people spend their life pursuing and lusting after, I mean, just pick one, riches. This is what he's talking about, riches. It could be sex, it could be fame, it could be education, whatever. Some people spend their life building that castle. They don't realize that it's a sandcastle. And one day the tide is going to come in and it's just going to wash it away. They'll have nothing to show for it under the sun. It'll be gone. John D. Rockefeller, great example. The Rockefellers are, you know, I say this in, I guess, the best way. They're a seriously messed up family. 
And they've done some horrible things in the world uh, under the guise of doing some great things in the world. John D. Rockefeller was the richest man on the planet at that time. And, and even in today's standards, he would outshine them all with the Standard Oil Company and a lot of things like that. But you, you read the life of this guy, and as he got to the last, I think it was around 15 years of his life, he, he became paranoid. He became paranoid that he was going to lose his money, that someone was going to steal it. And this affected him so much, history tells us that he was not able to sleep at night. He, he stayed awake most all night, worried, listening for sounds. He was unable to eat anything but ground-up mush until at the end of his life, he looked like a walking skeleton. And a reporter in a famed interviewer, a reporter once asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. And when he died, he left it all. Folks, we can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead by storing up treasures in heaven. Matthew uh, 6, 19 through 21, Jesus gave some great words about that. In chapter 6, Got to move quickly here. Solomon talks more about the emptiness, the foolishness of chasing riches. And in verse 7, he gives what I think is a, sn- a sobering snapshot of the entire book. Chapter 6, verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is never satisfied. Now, that word appetite there is more correctly translated soul. It literally means soul. And so, That verse can rightly be read, all the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet his soul is never satisfied. His mouth, things under the S-U-N. His soul, things that are related to the S-O-N. Which one are you feeding? Listen, millions of people, millions of people fill their life with things and they die with an empty soul. Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Folks, that's the worst trade a person could possibly ever make. Well, in chapter 7, there's a statement I'm sure we've all heard. Chapter 7, verse 2, he says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For death is the end of every man, and the living should take this to heart. Boy, that sounds like a real downer, doesn't it? What a great guy. I'd love to hang out with him sometimes. Sounds like a real uh, partier. No. He's not saying don't ever go to a celebration, don't ever go to a party. That's missing the point. It's clear there. He's, he's saying, folks, I threw the most lavish, the most over-the-top parties anyone had ever seen, and they didn't teach me anything. But he says, every time I went to a funeral, it woke me up and it made me realize that it's going to be my funeral one day. And that made me examine my life. Psalm 90 verse 12, Moses wrote, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Can I just ask you, not in a morbid, morbid sense, as you're racing about through life, do you hear the clock ticking? Do you ever, in the maddening noise and pace of it all, do you ever just stop and go, what is that? Oh, that's my life. It's ticking away, man. It's easy to lose sight of eternity. We get busy with life. 
And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves doing everything as though we're going to live forever. We're putting all our time and energy into earthly things, and we've lost sight of the eternal perspective. And when we do that, Solomon says, it's all vanity. It's all empty. It's all meaningless. Well, the rest of chapter 7 through chapter 11 is filled with tons of Proverbs, a lot like the little Proverbs that Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs. And he elaborates more about all these topics that he's already talked about. And you can, again, go through those on your own time. But then we come to chapter 12, the last chapter, and the mood, the tone suddenly changes. All the way through this book up until now, Solomon has been, if you will, painting with very dark, very gloomy colors. I I picture Ecclesiastes like, um, and Patricia is an artist, a wonderful artist, she might appreciate this. I, I picture it as walking into an art gallery with a long room. And as you walk in on your left, there's a wall, and the wall is just an unbroken wall all the way down this room. And you walk in, and there's this canvas that's maybe 100 feet long. And Ecclesiastes, to me, is is like Solomon has come to this 100-foot-long canvas, and he's begun, begun painting these scenes that we've been going through in Ecclesiastes, all the way down to the very, very end. And when you first enter the room, you begin at the left-hand side of, of the painting, and the canvas is, is just covered with these dark, reckless, wild brushstrokes. And as you walk further to your right down this long canvas, these drab, dreary scenes continue to unfold to, to the point where you're just kind of filled with despair. And you go, oh, man, I, don't, I, I want to go see something else. This is just too dark. It's too much. You almost, you almost maybe walk away, but you go, ah, look, let's just continue to the end. And as you near the end of the canvas, strokes of sunlight begin to break through. You continue to walk and it grows brighter and brighter until you come to the final scene. And the light and the vibrant colors that explode into the painting there at the very, very end are only that beautiful and glorious because of all the darkness that came before. If Solomon had just painted chapter 12, you would have gone, eh, it's another, another nice painting of a sunny day. But after walking all the length of that canvas and just feeling sick, just going, oh, this is horrible. Who would, who would paint this? It's awful. And you come to the end, and suddenly there's this burst of color and light and glory And you appreciate it so much more because of just what you've walked through. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon painted the canvas this way intentionally. Some people, as I said, don't don't like the book of Ecclesiastes. They, They say it's depressing. It is. It is depressing. But that's exactly the place Solomon wants to bring us to. He wants to make sure that we see very clearly just how dark and pointless and meaningless life is when it is lived only from an earthly perspective. But here's the beautiful part of this book. Standing in front of all that emptiness and darkness, we're left saying, boy, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something better than this. 
And in chapter 2, in chapter 12, Solomon says, there is. There is something better. And he, he points us to the solution, to the answer. He started us out in life under the S-U-N, which by itself is pointless and empty. But then in these final verses, he points us to life in the S-O-N, which is the only way life can have meaning and purpose. And by, by focusing our gaze toward the pointless earthly perspective and the pursuits of man, Solomon has subtly and brilliantly pointed us to God. He's painted the darkness of life without God, and he's just sort of held us down in that for 11 chapters. And by doing that, we come up for air, and we go, there's got to be something better. Solomon goes, there is, right over here. Ecclesiastes 12.1, remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. And then the middle part of chapter 12, he goes on to describe, sometimes in comical terms, the, the aging process as one approaches the end of his life. He talks there in one of the verses about when the grinders cease because they are few. He's talking about losing your teeth when you get old and you can't grind food, you can't chew anymore. He says, looking through the windows grow dim. He's talking about your eyesight fading as you get older. He says, you become afraid of heights as you get older. I'm kind of there, man. I, I don't even like going up on ladders anymore. I just think about insurance payments and hospital bills. <laughs> he talks about how the little things, like a little bug, the little things in life that never bothered you before become a burden to you at this stage of your life. And boy, does he sum it up beautifully. And he wraps it all up by saying, folks, I've painted a picture of just how ugly and pointless and frustrating a life apart from God really is. And do you want to know how to avoid a life like that? He says, I'll tell you, in my last words in this book, the last two verses, verses 13 and 14. Boy, this is something. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. How about that? The conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fearing God and keeping his commands is the whole duty of man. You see, we were created by God for God. And I think too many people forget this part. Yeah, God created me. I was created by God. Yes, friend, yes. But you were created for God. And because of that, folks, we will we'll never find true meaning and satisfaction and purpose and fulfillment in anything under the S-U-N. Why? We can't. We, it's impossible, you understand. It's not just that you're missing out. It's not this, this that you, you can't achieve it. You can't achieve it because we were created to be fulfilled by one thing. We were never created to be fulfilled by or redeemed by anything under the sun. It's impossible. I saved this verse to last, Ecclesiastes 3.11. He, he just said this beautiful phrase. He said, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. Man, oh man, oh man. 
God has put eternity in the hearts of men. Yeah, we may run from him. We may try to find satisfaction apart from him, but folks, that internal beacon is always going to be pinging, and it's always going to be pinging for home. I don't care who you are. You were made by God, and you were made for God, and there is nothing under the sun that can ever fulfill you. Here's Solomon, an old man. He's wasted lots of years, man. He's wasted big chunks of his life messing around with pointless things. And he says, I thought all that was going to fulfill me, but man, it left me empty and frustrated. I thought I had it, but I looked and it was gone. I ended up with nothing. And so I closed by just asking, what about you? What about you? Are you investing all your time and treasure, energy and skills and passion and devotion for things under the S-U-N? Or are you pursuing life in the S-O-N? I pray that God will maybe use this little message this morning to reawaken all of us to the emptiness of life apart from him and to the fullness of a life lived for him. I pray that that awareness will keep our hearts and our desires and our eyes firmly fixed upon heaven. We got one shot at this, folks. One shot. How are you doing with it? May God grant all of us the desire to pursue him above everything else. When life is over, that's the only thing that will matter. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.